There's been a lot of talk in the news about the near criminal gouging of restaurants from delivery apps like Uber Eats and Postmates, who sometimes charge more than 30% to an already struggling industry. One of my favorite restaurants, Ronin, paid over $30,000 in delivery fees last year alone. What's not often talked about though, is the fact that these apps are not only charging astronomical fees, but they're also withholding user data from the restaurants, meaning that the delivery apps hold their customer base hostage too. It's some seriously shady business that's impacting an industry that could really use a lifeline right now. Enter ChowNow, an LA-based company that offers ordering not based on percentages, but rather a flat monthly fee, and then shares user data from its platform with the restaurants. We chat with CEO Chris Webb about how and why he started his business, his proposed solutions to the inequity within the delivery sphere, and where he sees the platform going in the years to come. But first, a word from our sponsor. You guys know that I'm all about balancing my love of food and wine with fitness, and let's be real, home fitness is here to stay. That's why I'm excited to have an Ergata digitally connected rower. It's the perfect choice for anyone looking for an efficient, engaging, full body workout. But the thing I like most about this rower is the fact that it's visually stunning. Handcrafted in the U.S. from rich cherry wood, Ergata brings fitness into your home without having to drag that sterile gym aesthetic along with it. Their water rowing machine stores upright in a snap and transforms into a connected fitness device with personalized workouts and competitive races against other community members. So if you're looking to take control of your fitness from home, go see what I'm talking about at ergata.com. That's E-R-G-A-T-T-A.com. Now onto the show. Hey, Krista. Hey, Chris. How are you? I'm good. I apologize for being late. I uh, I couldn't find my way into this room. <laughs> you know, I, it's funny, like as much as I've done this, there always seems to be something on my end too. So don't even worry about it. My dog okay. was happy. I got to go take him for a quick little walk outside. So yeah. yeah. And you're here in LA, right? I am. Yeah. Yeah. I'm over in mid city. Yeah. So, um, so I'm in Mar Vista. So oh, I'm, um, yeah. So I, I weirdly grew up here uh, in Mar Vista. So I, I just moved back. We moved back here in September from Venice. Not that far. It's a mile. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Quite the journey you had there. But, but like, I felt like I lived in a different, oh, I did live in technically a different neighborhood. Yeah. No, I, I lived in New York for, for years in my twenties. Mm. <clears throat> for, in my 20s. So I felt like I got away only to come back to Mar Vista. So yeah. Oh. What brought you back? What was, I feel like everyone kind of boomerangs eventually that grew up here. It's usually a round trip ticket that you buy. Um, it's, it's usually not one way. Um, and I think I just burnt out in the city after being there for three years. I think year five, I, it got to me and it was everything that makes that city so awesome eventually caught up to me. It's like, I don't want to go out again. I love restaurants, but I don't want to. And, and so you're like, I'm in this tiny little apartment that I pay so much money for and I'm not enjoying the city like I used to enjoy it. Like I, mm-hmm. I, want, I want space. I want. And so I, I, I always assumed I'd make it back to L.A. Um, that, that was, that was always kind of in the cards. Even when I, the first month I moved out to New York as much as I loved it and loved my entire time there, I always knew I'd be back here. Um, and I think that's what ultimately got to me was just the, the energy of the city, the amount of people, the, like, I can't drink five nights a week anymore. (laughs) Eventually (laughs) your liver is just like, please stop. Yeah. 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 I get that. Especially now it's so nice to have a little bit of space and, you know, a kitchen to cook in. And I really appreciate my dwelling space more than I ever have. 
Totally. Yeah, yeah, totally. Did, did you ever live outside of LA? Yeah, I did make it out. Um, I went to college in Santa Cruz. And okay. then after that, um, I obviously did the whole study abroad thing. I lived in Barcelona, which was incredible. I mean, talk about like always wanting to be out and eating and drinking and dancing and all that. And then I went and worked to Harvest in Australia, actually. I was um, working in the wine industry at the time at a tasting room. And I was really into wine. And I thought I wanted to go get a degree in viticulture or enology. And before I did that, they recommended like go work the crush. And so at the time, just based on like when I'd finally saved enough money, I needed to go to the Southern Hemisphere. And I'd always really loved the Barossa Valley and Clare Valley. So packed up all my stuff, backpack, like thought I was going to be down there for maybe a month or two and ended up staying for over a year. It was incredible. Went to the uh, Western region as well, the Southwestern part of Australia and nannied and worked in some wineries there and just like fell in love with it. And then eventually got kind of homesick. I boomeranged back to Los Angeles and I was like, Oh, I'll find a visa. Like I'll find a way to get back to Australia. And now, boy, oh boy, am I wishing I did because (laughs) things are very different down there. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, um, the family that owns the house that we're currently renting right now are Australians. And so when COVID hit last year, they they stuck around for a little bit and it was clearly like the U S and Australia were going on very different paths and how they were reacting. And they're like, screw it. We're going to go back to Australia. So they rented. So we were renting this house fully furnished. So I feel like I live in an Airbnb. Um, you look like it. It's beautiful. The little poofs and you've got your Monstera on it. It's like, it's fully branded. It's very cute. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, we don't own any of this stuff. Um, this is all theirs. Um, but it's a really nice Australian family. And, and they just said, screw it. We're going to go back until things are better in the U.S. And so they're hanging out in Australia right now. Uh, on the beach, like enjoying life. Yeah. I was just seeing, I'm part of a burning man group and um, the folks in New Zealand are like literally doing the burn for us (laughs) this weekend. And I'm like, what the fuck did we do wrong? Like people are out partying and having a good time. Rugby matches are going on. And anyway, um, you know, I, I agree. We are very privileged, obviously in the global scale, but it's just been hard to watch things be so wildly mismanaged and the lack of information that's been disseminated down and yeah. It's frustrating, but yeah, I mean, it's got me. I, I was a, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a Democrat myself. I'm very happy Biden's in, but I'm so disappointed in, in our local officials here. You know, Garcetti, I think is. I've, I've never been a huge Garcetti fan. He's always been kind of, kind of pretty vanilla to me. He's mm-hmm. just kind of down the, the down the fairway, just kind of. Eh. And I think he's done a pretty poor job lately. Newsom has not done a good job at all. He's done a pretty bad, a horrible job. And it's just like, come on, can't like, can't somebody get this right? Like, it's so frustrating, especially when it comes to the space that we work in, right? Like, you know, food, restaurants, entertainment, just the lack of leadership and the dissemination of information is, it's so frustrating. I know for restaurateurs and owners and operators, it's like, you're literally finding out about this stuff as it's being printed in the LA Times. Like there's just no organization, no protocols. I feel like there's gotta be a way I mean, I know it would be expensive, but I think we were, the Pineapple Hill video went viral, right? Which was yeah. actually growing up in the Valley. That was our like dive right. bar. I oh. love Pineapple Hill. <laughs> so like to see that that happen when they had, this is the video, you guys, if you're listening, um, went viral. It was this woman who owns this dive bar in the Valley in Sherman Oaks called Pineapple Hill. And when everything was shut down, the outdoor dining shut down in November, there was a production set that was going, popping up right next to them. And she was so upset because they got the catering outside, they got the tents, they got the whole thing going on. And yet she was closed down. which to me was sort of not a fair comparison, right? Because they're just these protocols in production where you're getting tested every day. 
there are, you know, the rules and regulations about who can touch what and the PPE and the whole thing. But there should be something where we can do that in restaurants where yeah. workers are getting tested daily. Where I mean, and of course, that's really expensive. And there's a reason why production has it and we don't because that shit is 150 bucks a pop and the margins are so small in restaurants. But there's got to be a way that we can figure this out in Los Angeles and fund something like that so people can just get back to work. 100%. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's been a disaster. I'm with you 100%. Um, it's crazy. And, and that video, I'm, I'm, I'm glad it got so much attention. It, it, you know, it was that. And then, and then it was, you know, the, the, the Newsome at French Laundry video was like, it's just so dumb that. And then, and, and, and so it gave away any goodwill that he'd built up. And so everything had to go right. And yet everything went wrong. And so <laughs> it's got, it's just made it the situation even worse. And, and, you have to trust the people that are giving you the information. All of a sudden, the trust is just vanished, right? So, so you don't anything that the governor says, the mayor says. You're just like, I don't trust you anymore. So, little information that you're providing, I just don't even believe to begin with. So, it's just kind of a everyone for themselves, which is not a good way of handling it. Certainly not, especially in a culture that like diverts to that individual <laughs> choice yeah. anyway. Yeah. It's yeah. just bad news bears. But I feel like this is a great segue to what you're doing because. It really has been up to restaurateurs and owners and operators to like figure this all out themselves. And a big part of that is delivery and takeout. And a huge issue right now, of course, is, you know, Postmates and Grubhub and all that are charging these astronomical fees to restaurateurs. And what tipped me off to what you were doing specifically is Ronin, which is one of my favorite restaurants locally. They made a post about how they spent over $30,000 in delivery fees. But through you guys, through Chowdown, there's none of that. It's a flat fee. So can you explain to me what the business model is and what the inspiration was behind that? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So so we started Chenow here in Los Angeles in 2011 is, is when Eric, my co-founder, and I started the company. And what we realized back then is, is two individuals that love local restaurants that you will probably never see us in Applebee's and, and rarely see us. And, and most chains, with some exceptions like In-N-Out and, and a few others, it's not that all chains are bad. It's just we 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 much prefer ordering pizza from that independent pizzeria down the street than from Domino's. It, it was very clear even a decade ago that tech and convenience was going to dominate. And, and one reason it was so obvious is because that's what the chains were telling us. Domino's were saying, our mobile app is driving a ton of sales. No one wants to wait on the phone anymore on a Friday night to order their pizza or coffee at a Starbucks or, or you, you name it. And so what we realized is that Somebody needs to help the independent restaurants and, and the small regional groups and chains get set up online. And the only option back then were for them to join a marketplace. And, and really back then, it was kind of Grubhub and E24 were the two big ones a decade ago before Uber launched and, and Postmates and DoorDash. And when you talk to restaurant owners back then, they hated that Grubhub took a commission and that commission went up every single year. And they, they even back then were describing as a, kind of the, the tech mafia they show up every year, like, you know, those orders you receive, you're going to have to pay us 10% this year, and then it's 12%. And then they come by a year later, and, you know, you want to receive those orders, you're going to have to pay for them. And, and they also remove that direct relationship that you have, that the diner has with their local restaurants, right? Because they are, they're this middleman that inserts themselves in the middle of that relationship. They own the relationship with the diner, they own all the data, and they don't share any of it with the restaurants. So they're essentially holding them hostage. And that's why they're able to come back every single year. So so we picked up early on this a decade ago, just talking to local restaurants. Um, I, I mentioned I, I lived in New York, so I got to know a lot of restaurant owners in New York, and they were saying the same thing about Seamless, which is now owned by Grubhub. Uh, and then randomly, my family uh, in 2006 got involved with Tender Greens, a local restaurant group out here. 
And that was on a whim. It was unexpected. We, we uh, prior to that point, had zero experience in the restaurant business. Kind of the very short story there is that my mom uh, walked in. Uh, she's super chatty and extroverted and started talking to the one of the three founders who was making mashed potatoes behind the counter. They'd opened that week and loved it. And they started talking to me as well. We're still looking to raise a little bit more money. And, and she's like, okay, well, I'll put a little bit of money in, which I thought was a horrible idea back then. And But she still did it. But those taters uh, are good, man. Yeah, yeah. And, and and she was dead right with that and, and very, you know, very lucky, very fortunate. And so I got to know the three founders pretty well and watching them build that business. And, and as great as they are at food and hospitality, they weren't very good at tech. And so they were also saying, we have lines at the door at lunch. We need our own online ordering platform. We don't want to use Grubhub. It doesn't make any sense. E24 doesn't make any sense for us to use. We just need a, an easy way for customers to order from us online. And there wasn't that solution. So this is a very long way of saying this is what we wanted to build a channel now. So that's what podcasts are for, man. You can talk <laughs> as long as you want and it, nobody's going to stop you. Certainly not me. So please. Okay. Just yeah, rambling and ranting. No, no, no. Um, it's awesome. an interesting story. So, so that was the the original idea for channel is how do you create this platform that allows any restaurant anywhere in the country with any budget to get up and running with their own brand? Kind of how do you get that front of house represented online so customers continue to order directly, just like they order directly for Damos, Pizza, Chipotle, Panera, and, and again, name any kind of big natural brand who has the resources to build this in-house. And so that was the original idea for Chan Out. It's still the core of our business today, even a, a decade later. We have always been anti-commission. We've always been pro-relationship in terms of the restaurant owning the relationship with their diners. We want to strengthen that relationship. We don't want to get in the middle of it. Uh, and so that's what we we have built at Chan Out. It's the kind of core bread and butter of what we do. We now have 20,000 restaurants across the U.S. that use our platform. So Ronin is, is you know, one of these 20,000. We, we, we love all of them. 90% are independently owned. The other ones are very small kind of regional restaurant groups. Um, we don't work with the big national chains. We are very passionate about the independence and the, the kind of the, the mom and pop restaurants and the independently owned kind of chef-driven restaurants. It, it's where we got our start and it's, it's what we're most passionate about. And then along the way, we restaurants will come to us and say, this is awesome for my existing takeout business. This makes me makes it so easy for me to manage my existing takeout business. I pay the monthly fee for the software and I don't have to pay any commissions or anything else. And I get all my customer data and relationship and everything there. But can you help me build uh, my takeout business as well? And so what we built is, is what we call the Order Better Network. And so we decided instead of building our own marketplace and going out and trying to just compete with Grubhub and others and spend insane amounts of money, which would then get us to charge commissions. We didn't want to go down the path. We wanted to take a very different path. And so we said, well, why don't we partner with people who already have a lot of traffic? So we partnered over the years, and, and this is part of our Order Better network, with Google and TripAdvisor, OpenTable. We'll have a few announcements coming out in a couple of weeks. Uh, Yelp is a partner, Instagram and others. And it allows restaurants to basically open up these digital storefronts on these apps and websites that already have millions and millions of, of daily visitors there. And it allows them to take orders off of this network. And so that's been a way of build, helping restaurants build their, their takeout business. And so that contributes, um, it varies restaurant to restaurant, but about 16% of all orders at a restaurant will come off of this order better network that we have built. And then along the way, uh, a few years ago, we built the Chicano app. We kind of built it for ourselves. We, we said, well, at, at this point, kind of rewind a couple of years, we called maybe at 8,000 restaurants back then. And again, it's grown to 20,000 since then. We said, well, we want to order from local restaurants. Um, um, and at the time, I was living in Venice and said, you know, all these restaurants around but I have to manually go into the dashboard and kind of remember which restaurants use Chanel and which ones don't. And so we built the Chanel app as the only product under our brand that we've ever kind of built. And, and it's basically a list of all our restaurants, the director of all our restaurants that we work with. 
and allows you to order directly from them. And it's kind of a quasi-direct way of ordering the restaurants. The restaurant doesn't have to pay a commission at all. They get all the customer data. So it's just like you ordering directly to the restaurant. It's just now there's one kind of consolidated directory or list that you can find. You can filter for pickup and delivery or curbside pickup or buy a cuisine type. You know, what's open for now? What can I order for later? There's a number of kind of filters that you can use to, to find the restaurants in your neighborhood that work with Chow Now. And it's become a very easy way of ordering. And so we put it in the app store and we've used it, but we don't do any consumer marketing to get it out there. Uh, and just over the last year or two, it's grown organically. And, and so last week it was number 44 in the app store for food and drink, just without us spending a dollar in marketing. And it's just kind of word of mouth marketing that that Ronin post that you mentioned on Instagram drove drove uh, people to the app. Other restaurants are talking about it as, as their preferred way of, of receiving orders from from their customer base. And so we're starting to kind of push into that a little, uh, a little bit more. And you'll see us re, kind of rethink and rebuild the channel app, always under the, kind of the ethos that there'll never be commissions there. It'll always be the best way for a diner order at a restaurant for both the diner and for the restaurant because the restaurant doesn't have to pay these crazy commissions that are 30 40%. And for a diner, what, what most diners don't realize but are starting to realize is that when you order on Grubhub and others, those menu prices are inflated and then you get all the service fees that are later on. So, mm-hmm. so last year, the New York Times wrote an article about this, about how much more expensive it is to use a delivery app to order food. So not only is the, the restaurant getting screwed, but the diner is getting screwed by paying 20, 30, 40% higher, you know, higher menu prices and, and other fees that are kind of inserted in. So so. It, we want to build the best place for both the diner to order and for the restaurant to receive the order. And that's kind of what we've been working at. That's so interesting. So when it first started, you guys essentially, was it something that they would then build into their website and it was sort of like a digital point of sale before the app? I mean, was that kind of how it worked or? That's exactly right. Yeah. So, okay. so it was building a restaurant's order onto their existing website, just exactly what you described. And then we also build restaurants their own branded mobile apps so that restaurants, if they want, can have their own iPhone app and their own Android app. So really the Rustic Canyon group in Santa Monica, you know, Milo and Olive and Huckleberry and, and Birdie G's and, and all of them. Mm-hmm. They, there's a Rustic Canyon family app that we built for them on our platform that allows them to have their one app. And they just tell their customers use the what they call the RC family restaurant app. And you can kind of order from Casilla or any of, of the restaurants there. And so they want to build up that joint relationship, just like at the end of any Chipotle TV ad, it always ends, download the Chipotle app, use the Chipotle app, right? It's it's the same kind of drumbeat over and over again. Now your local restaurant is going to have that same messaging, order directly from us, download our app. If you're you're going to order a lot from us, use the app. If you're going to order less from us, they don't put it this way, but essentially use our website if, if you're going to order once every couple months. Sure, sure. And that was all kind of inspired by the, the sort of the wireframes, I imagine, from tender greens you used to build those initial apps for the restaurant groups and everything. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And, and to clarify, we we actually never worked directly with tender greens on this. They were the inspiration because they ended up building their own to kind of jump back to that story for a second. What I witnessed is they said, we need to build something. They went out and built something, they hired an outside development shop, and they spent tens of thousands of dollars building something that I viewed as mediocre at best and then outdated three years later and didn't have all this stuff. And so I, I witnessed that. And, and from their standpoint, they're like, well, we already spent tens of thousands of dollars on this and we have this ordering system that was not all that great. It was kind of buggy. And that that watching them go through that process, that was really the inspiration. So at that point, they had already had this, this ordering system. Um, and so that's where we jumped in, in in 2010. 2010 is when we started, Eric and I started thinking about it, mm-hmm. talking to more restaurants and and. Uh, David over at Tender Greens and others and, and friends in New York that own restaurants. 2011 is when we got super serious about it, went full time into it, raised some, some money from friends and family, built the, the, the first beta version of it. And 2012 is when we officially launched and, and started working with restaurants officially. 
Cool. So when you buy into this as a restaurant, I, um, I'm thinking of, I'm, you know, working in the digital space as well. And I use Squarespace and Wix. Is it a similar thing where if the restaurant buys in, they can then kind of customize their Chow Now app? That's a perfect analogy. Yeah. No, they, the fact that it's, it's template based, right. Which allows you to do it at scale and brings the cost way down. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to build something completely custom. Um, so if you want to go out and build your own podcast, app and you hire developers to do it, that's going to cost you minimum hundreds of thousands of dollars. If you want something really sophisticated, we're talking about millions of dollars. And then you have to constantly update it, right? So Apple will roll out a new version of Apple Pay in a year or two as they constantly kind of improve on it and roll out different versions. Google Maps will come out with a better version of Google Maps as it, you know, just software improves over time. And you will constantly have to come back and rebuild that app and iterate on it, which is why if you look in, you know, your app store, you're constantly seeing your apps, you know, that you use constantly updated, right? And, and they're constantly getting better. And so it is very expensive. And so for us, the best way of bringing this to, to thousands and tens of thousands of restaurants across the U.S. is to use templates the exact same way you describe kind of Squarespace or Wix or Weebly. And so you can customize it and pick and choose, and it feels custom. But on the back end, it, it still uses kind of one back end, which allows you to kind of share the cost across thousands and thousands of other restaurants. Copy. So in terms of now, I know that um, an Instagram there, you can connect it with your Shopify app. You can, so you can kind of click and buy. Are you guys the only, I know that restaurants are using that. Are you guys the only purchasing app for restaurants that is connected or do you, can you plug, could Grubhub also plug in or how does that work? So we're the only partner that Instagram has that does not charge a commission for that Instagram order. So they, they work with Postmates and, and a few others. Mm -hmm. And so it's up to the restaurant to choose who do I want to plug into my Instagram business account so I can use this feature so the customers can order directly from my, my stories that I post. And so we are the only option for them that does not charge the commission. And so for restaurants that like Ronin is an example, uses this constantly because they have a decent fall. I think they have eight or 9,000 people that follow them on, on Instagram. And throughout the week, they will roll out a new pizza or a new dish and they will say, Hey, order from here. And then they put that, that link right in that story so that uh, anyone on Instagram can click it and place that order immediately off Instagram. It, it's really, really smooth. And so we are the best option just because if Ronan were to use Postmates as an example, as they, they shared in that, that post that you referenced earlier, they would give up 30% of the revenue to, to Postmates in that case. So you know we pride ourselves in, in being the best option there. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you can kind of pick and choose which one you want to use, but you can only use one. And if you're going to use one, it makes sense to use the one that's not charging you 30%. Not charging a commission and giving you 100% of the customer data, right? Yeah, Yeah. that's another important point that I wanted to come back to actually is the customer data. That's something that's really important, especially at a restaurant, not necessarily the, the demo breakdown, but like what dishes are performing best. So you can plan and order properly. So like the fact that Grubhub... And Uber Eats and all that aren't giving you that data. How do you plan, especially now when everything is delivery? Yeah, not only that, but it doesn't allow you to leave them or it makes it very difficult, right? So you are renting your customer from them, essentially. You're paying your, every time they order, it's it's essentially kind of paying rent for that same customer. And so if you were to leave someplace else, you can't take your customer base with you. They own it. They won't share the email addresses and everything else. And so it becomes very costly and it allows them, it gives them that leverage to go and say, hey, we're going to charge you more, right? And if you don't pay a higher commission, you're going to receive less orders. And you can't say, I'm going to move over to to X. It's very much like building your audience on Facebook. So, you know, Facebook owns that audience. It's really, really difficult to take them with you. There's kind of ways of kind of trying to hack it together, but it's not not smooth and it's it's a really huge pain. Years ago, 
in the kind of earlier days of Facebook when they, this is when everyone is like, follow some Facebook, follow some, every store, you know, every, you get the stickers in the, the windows of, of restaurants saying, follow some Facebook with a, a thumbs up icon. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden these businesses, not just restaurants, kind of all types of businesses started to build their following. And then two years later, Facebook circles back and they're like, oh, if you want people to actually see those posts, you're going to have to promote those posts and pay us, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and so because they own that and you didn't have access versus if you'd built it on your own, you know, through email or anything yeah. else. And, and it's the exact same type of concept. It's similar to owning a real estate, uh, you know, your, your actual physical location versus renting where the landlord can come back to you every couple of years when your lease is up and be like, yep, time to raise that rent again. Right. And, you know, it, it, you have very little leverage um, in that versus if you actually own the building, you're like, no, I control this. And so control is is key to all of this. You want to control that that relationship and control all the customer data. Yeah. I mean, it, it, even take it a step further, it would almost be like the landlord was like, and by the way, your customers, if you move your location, they're staying here. They're not going with you. Oh, 100%, you don't own, yeah. that, that's the part that's crazy to me. And the thing that really ticks me right off is that if, for instance, one of these other apps says, you know, you decide to move off their platform, then they're going to send those customers over to some stupid freaking ghost kitchen that like doesn't even exist. And it's like, but yeah. look, these guys make pizza. And it's like, yeah, yeah. And, like yeah. that's a family that lives down the street that depends yeah. on this, not to poo poo ghost kitchens. Cause it's kind of whatever, that's a whole nother issue. And we have a whole episode dedicated to that from season one guys. Yeah. Have a listen. I think that that owning, owning your users is yeah. so important. Your customers is so important because it's a yeah. customer base. It's a customer service. A hundred percent. And even if you don't leave them, what you just described happens all the time. So, so I talked to restaurant owners, and I have for years and, and they come to me and they, they're kind of, kind of giddy. They're, they're bragging. They're like, I just got grubbed. I just, I, I negotiated the best rate. I'm only paying 15% for these orders. And I'm like, you don't understand what they're doing. They did that because you have a great brand. You have a local following. You're the kind of local hero within your neighborhood that people know. And they are siphoning off your customers because there's a restaurant on the street that's going to pay them 30%. And where do you think that customer is going to be? That, that email that that customer is going to get in a week from Grubhub who do you think is going to be at the top of that email? You paying 15% or the restaurant paying 30%? So you really are kind of this patsy to Grubhub that are, are basically the lead funnel to bring all their customers into Grubhub only to have them funnel to the restaurant that's paying 30%. And then they're going to play you off of them. And so if you want to pay that, get those customers back, they will come back to you and be like, well, yeah, th thanks for all the customers. Th thanks for sharing your customer base and paying us you know, 15% on that. You want them to come back to you. It's time to pay us 25% because... Uh, restaurant B down the way is, is paying us that and, and your customers seem to be okay ordering from them because we're emailing them every single day saying order from that restaurant versus from yours. So, so uh, this really is yeah. just as bad as Yelp, if not worse. Like I remember when that was a thing, it was like, all oh, I think it's way more made. costly than Yelp. Yeah. It's, it's, it's fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's like really messed. I mean, like, you know that it's bad, but then once you start like really delving into it, it's really bad. It's not. Oh, it's, it's, I mean, they're changing phone numbers. They, you know, I'm not sure if you've caught the story last year that was exposed, but Grubhub was swapping out phone numbers. Right. And so trying to intercept customers calling the restaurant. And then what they found is if a customer called the restaurant and was on the phone for long enough, they assume that customer was placing an order and they would charge the restaurant seven bucks or, or some amount saying, we just assumed that that customer was on the phone long enough that they were placing an order and that they, we originated that customer to you. So you owe us money for that. That customer could have been calling to cancel an order to call like to ask about if something was gluten-free or, or plant-based or whatever it may be. They have no idea. And so this was finally, I, I forgot what which publications broke the story, but I think the New York Post highlighted New York a lot, but some other publications picked up. I mean, the amount of these bad practices that are just awful to restaurants are just, it's, it's endless. It's, it's, 
you know, I, I think by far Grubhub is the worst of this. I mean, and there's no comparison. I mean, they've just yeah. been awful for, for so many years. And their, their fee is 30, right? It varies market to market. It's, it's anywhere from 20 to up to 40% because they, they will have these promoted posts. So if you want to be at the top of the page and it's competitive, let's say it's in the neighborhood in New York City, it's a pizzeria where there's obviously a fair amount of pizzerias in New York City. They will say, if you want to be at the top of the list, you're going to have to outbid your, your uh, other pizzerias in the neighborhood to be at the top of the list. So if someone's ordering just pizza and they, you want the search results, you're paying 40, 50%. I mean, they, they're that. That is the, insane. That could yeah. kill literally. I mean, without <laughs> a pandemic, that could kill a restaurant. Yeah, I mean, you may have, I don't know how often you, you open up Uber Eats, but if you open it up, you'll see ads now in Uber Eats. So not only are they charging commissions, but then wow. now they have ad units for restaurants to buy ad units on top of it to find placement. Cause I mean, in a sense, it's limited real estate within an app, right? You only have so much space within an app to get attention before people kind of lose interest. So, so you need to kind of lock in that. And so you can argue that Uber Eats has millions of people that open that app. And so that is very expensive real estate there. Um, you can kind of think of it as like just constantly competing to be on Rodeo Drive. Or that's probably an outdated reference. I don't well, know. Well, just to be above the yeah. fold in a newspaper. Yeah. I'm a news person. Yes. So like you want to be above the fold and that costs money or like a rap <laughs> ad, you know, I mean, that's just like... I don't, I don't, to be honest, I don't use any of those. I try to order direct as much as possible. Quite frankly, I'm, I'm not even in a position right now to be ordering a lot of takeout. It's just been a really rough year, but I think it's really important for us to know, like, look, it's not that hard to pick up the phone and it's certainly not that hard to go to a website that's powered by Chow Now or, you, you know, use the app yeah. as well. Like you, that makes a huge difference. Yep. Um, and no, it just 100%. Really corrupt. It's so yeah. corrupt. Like we know about all the corruption and like the food system as a whole and big ag and farming and all that jazz, but like, this is really shady business. Oh, a hundred percent. And and so, you know, these companies have spent billions of dollars building, basically siphoning off customers, the customers that would have ordered the restaurant anyway. Right. It wasn't like mm-hmm. restaurants didn't have customer bases. These customers were, were direct, but, but these companies like Uber Eats have spent, I mean, literally billions and billions of dollars in the way of marketing, uh, you know, the Super Bowl will be on in a couple of weeks and, and a number of them will be running Super Bowl ads and spending millions of dollars just on the Super Bowl alone, not including kind of everything else they're doing. And it's all about siphoning off customers to only send those customers back to the restaurants that in many cases they were intending to order from in the first place. So they're just adding inefficiency. And the, the cost of that inefficiency comes in the way of diners having to pay higher menu prices and restaurants having to give up huge cuts of their revenue to these companies just to recoup the marketing costs to insert themselves into this equation. It, 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 it just is a really inefficient way and, and costs a lot of money to, to a lot of people. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of unofficial kind of corruption, maybe a true corruption as well within the system. And thankfully, in the last year, there's attention being drawn to this. And so for years, China team has been trying to talk to the press, say these things have been going on for years. Grubhub has been this kind of you know, the squid on the industry is siphoning off and sucking out kind of all this, this revenue and everything else for years and years and years. And we never got the press to pay a ton of attention. And restaurant owners do, and they were they they were fed up. It's one reason we've been able to grow our business as that alternative, as the better better ordering platform. Mm-hmm. And and finally, you know, one of the only good things in my view from COVID, maybe it's just kind of specific to the restaurant industry, is that the press woke up, the consumers and the general public have woken up, and city governments have now woken up in, in the way of kind of delivery caps and other regulations that are being put in place here in California. You may have seen a couple of weeks ago a new law went in place that makes it illegal to list restaurants on your website without their cons- consent of the restaurant, which has been a, a, another practice that's been awful for restaurants for years and years and years. So that's a, you know, that's a welcome advancement that's come about. 
And so now people are looking for that alternative. The, the one thing that I take, I'm not sure I take issue with that. I, I still welcome these articles, but a lot of these articles that come out from, you know, whether it's Eater, the New York Times or, or New Yorker, you kind of name or CNN or, or any of them are highlighting that these delivery apps are not great for restaurants and very expensive for the consumer. They don't list the alternative that's very easy, right? So they say, just order direct, call the restaurant. No one really wants to call the restaurant all that much anymore these days. It's kind of a pain. Restaurants are, are working with skeleton crews. So it's not like they even have a lot of people to pick up the phone and take orders. Mm-hmm. So, it's, so it's not great for them. The truth is, like, and, and we want to build, we want to be that last paragraph in the article. And that's what we're working on China now is, is use China now. Because we are that alternative where you know you're paying the best menu price to the consumer and that 100% of the proceeds of your order are going to the restaurant. And we can guarantee that that will always be the case. We will never change that. And, and that, that's what we're working on. And this is what we're trying to, one, get the word out and to be that alternative. So, so that hopefully, you know, we really want restaurants to think of the Chano app as, as more of a co-op than anything else, where they feel like they, they have ownership in it, where they have a huge say that they are they are priority number one within the app and, and always will be. And, and so essentially what we will guarantee from here on out to tell the restaurants. Sure. Yeah, it's interesting uh, working in the media, how it works, right? It's like you figure out a story performs well and people care about these things now. So then the same story just kind of gets a new spin and it's all over the headlines. And it's like, but wait, like we're forgetting one thing here. Like, yes, we are part of a house of cards and things are crumbling down, but there is a solution. Like there is a way to do this right. And I'm curious, obviously you are not charging those fees. How do you make money then? (laughs) That's a big question. Good question. Yeah, yeah. So, So good old fashioned way of just a flat monthly fee. In many ways, we think of ourselves as kind of a, the modern version of a telephone line, right? It's just a communication tool. It's a way of, of ordering at your local restaurant, just like decades ago and, and maybe even years ago, you pick up the phone and you call the restaurant and the restaurant would pay the phone company a, a monthly fee to have a phone line into their restaurant, right? It wasn't like the phone company, you know, whoever it is, at t or anyone else was like, hey, for every order you get over the phone, you're going to pay us 20% or 30%. Like restaurants would have stopped paying phone orders. For some reason along the way, online ordering companies said, because that that order is taking place online, we have the ability to charge restaurants a commission for that order. And that never made sense to us. It's just a communication tool. So we we think just like phone systems charge the flat monthly fee or whatever it was, you know, and then still do charge a, a flat monthly fee for a phone line. We charge a flat monthly fee that's anywhere from $99 a month to $149 a month, depending on the the plan that they sign up for, for everything, right? So they get all the software, they get their own branded mobile apps, they get order on their website and they get listed within the channel app. And that's that's the bulk of our revenue is just from that flat monthly fee. We also have marketing tools for restaurants. If they want to if they want to use us for marketing, we can help them with marketing both to, to find new customers. There's um, various kind of options and add-ons if they want to use that. And then around retention. So getting customers to come back, we have a, a really great program that we have a few thousand restaurants that use that they pay us $50 a month for. We will design an email with them. We'll work on a, a monthly campaign for that month. And we will handle all of it. Our design team will design it. And we will then send it out a couple of times to their customer days throughout the month to get customers to come back. And, and what we have basically guaranteed restaurants, it's for every dollar you give us in the way of, of marketing to, to, to run this, we will return at least $8 in returns. We want to make sure that this is profitable. And what we've seen over the last year is actually we're returning $24 for every dollar they give us. So they pay us $50 and for every dollar there, they get 24 X that in the way of those emails to their customer bases that, that continues to build over time. We'll get an email and they'll get that email at the end of the month, say, Hey, order from us, you know, lodge bread or, or whoever you are. 
know, I mean, this is, you know, I'm, I'm listing restaurants in LA because we're here and, and we all you know, know these restaurants, but, but this is true of restaurants that we work with across the US. And then uh, halfway through the month, if someone hasn't clicked on that email, we'll send another email or if someone's clicked on it, but they haven't ordered, we'll send another one. So there's some kind of logic that's built into this. And it makes it super easy for restaurants to kind of run the, these, these email campaigns to their existing diners to get those diners to come back. Just like those emails that you get from Grubhub and everyone else, every single day when you open your inbox of order, 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 we need restaurants to send the same type of emails. And some will do it. Some will use MailChimp and everything else. And because they have all this data, they can export it. They can put a MailChimp or Constant Contact or Fishbowl or whatever they use for email marketing. But some restaurants prefer to pay us 50 bucks a month to do it for them. And they'll pay us 50 bucks. So it's another way that, that we make money as well. Um, so those are the the main ways that we make money, which is just kind of honest and transparent. And, and we think the right way of doing it. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. I think too, like, especially with everybody working in skeleton crews where like your SOM may now also be like your general manager and also handling, handling social media yeah. and handling email lists. Yeah. It's like, please someone take this from me and like, take this off of my plate. I actually, your bartenders are doing deliveries for you. I mean, it, it, it is, it is like that. It's exactly what yeah. you described. It really is. I mean, honestly, part of this is like, I wonder if I could use this for my email list because I don't have an email list. Like yeah. I'm, I'm, I love like creating the content and coming up with the ideas, but I'm terrible with blasting it out aside from Instagram. It's so critical though to stay in it's front so, of people. It really is important. And to that tune, guys, I never ask for this, but now it just made me think if you're really liking this podcast, you should definitely review it. I'm like, please give it some stars and thumbs up, whatever yeah. it is the kids are doing these days, because that really helps me a lot and helps me get these really cool stories out. So um, thank you for reminding me of that. Well, I think this is just a really cool thing. I, I guess one thing we didn't cover in the backstory of all this, which I, is what I think is really interesting, is I'm, I'm wondering if you did you come from the tech space and this was like I got to right the wrongs or like where were you, what were you doing in New York that led you to this? Yes, so so my background is not tech, but I've always been fascinated as, as kind of a kid who grew up in the '90s. In high school, there are kind of two things. There are probably a few things I really got interested in, but two that I, I remember distinctly. And one, and, and they both happened to be hot in the '90s. One was tech because the internet was new, and you know, our family was kind of among the first to get AOL back then, and the dial-up modem and all that stuff. Yeah. And, you know, I so I grew that. up with that in you know middle school days, and then going into high school, and then the kind of dot-com era, and, and kind of watching that. And then the other thing I was fascinated with was the stock market, and and they were they went hand in hand, and so econ class in high school where you pick stocks and track them through a semester. I, like everyone else back then, picked four or five stocks as part of this assignment and tracked them. And they all went up because everything went up back in the stock market back in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, man, I am good at this. This is I I have a knack for picking stocks. Mm-hmm. And you can pick anything. Everything was going up back then. But you know, it's just being naive and young and, and everything else. So so I then went on a path of of following the stock market because I just really loved it. That's what took me to New York because I just fell in love with the, the way the market worked, the way it kept you honest over time. Because then, you know, a couple of years later, obviously everything crashed and that, that was a wake up call and a lesson as well. So I still had this passion for tech. I was always fascinated and, and really kind of jealous and envious of companies, of, of these other startups who were kind of starting up and, and you know, watching Facebook come in the scene and, be, you know, watching that early in the early days and that grow and then others. And I was always just kind of paying attention, really close attention and, and wish I knew how to code. I, I don't know how to code. I'm not an engineer, but I think I have a, a fairly good product mind because I just analyze it and I obsess over it. And so, so it wasn't until that very random investment, small investment in Tender Greens out of the blue that Allison now I'm paying attention to the restaurant industry. I've always been fascinated with food. At, at a young age, I, for some reason, was fascinated with food. I took cl- cooking classes when I was five, six, seven years old at the kind of local park. 
in elementary school, my my best friend back then, his dad was a really well-known, famous chef, a guy named Patrick Clark. He eventually became chef, um, head chef at Tavern on the Green, but Bill Clinton cool. tried to uh, recruit him to be the head chef at the White House in the 90s. And so um, I flew out to D.C. The, the family moved from L.A. to D.C. and I flew out and stayed with them for a little while and just got fascinated with food as well. And then for some reason, that fascination faded in high school. Even like things like sports that I was into when I was younger kind of faded in high school. I got less into sports for some reason and that kind of circled back later in life. Mm-hmm. So moving to New York, you have to love food. Like if, if you don't love restaurants and food, there's no reason to live in New York because yeah. you sacrifice so much else to live in a small apartment and, and everything else. You have to love going and spending time at restaurants. And, and, and I did. That love only grew. So, so when I was ready to move back to New York, I was thinking of like, what can I do? What can I start? And it was through conversations with, with Tender Greens, one of my favorite restaurants. Um, and they became a friend is, is a restaurant called Caracas in New York. Their original location from the, the East Village, unfortunately, they just had to close it down, which was after many years. Um, but they saw the, the Brooklyn location going. And Mary Bell, who's the owner, is just so, so amazing. I've got to know her over the years. Even when I lived in New York, I got to know her. And so it was through conversations with her and others. And again, the, the, the team over at Tender Greens, that was inspired, the kind of the idea for Chanel and this foundational, like I want to build a product and I want to start building products and here's the product that is lacking that I think that I want to build. And then uh, Eric, who, I've, who also grew up in LA, went to UCLA and, and has been a friend since I was 18 years old. So I kind of went to him and said, hey, what do you think about tackling this problem, trying to build this together? Yeah. You know, I think it was a very special time growing up on the internet in the 90s. Like I too, you know, AOL was like my hobby. And I think that like there's something about our generation that are one hand an analog and kind of remembers life without it. And then remembers... Like when it first started, it wasn't like you were constantly being sold something. It wasn't this giant billboard always being assaulted. It really was like cool chat rooms for like other kids that like techno. You know, there were definitely weirdos out there. There was that, you know, ASL. Um, But I feel like there was a, a little bit of purity to it in a way where it really was about connecting people and like kind of this wide open space. And so I, I kind of, in a way, empathize with the generation younger, a little bit younger than us, because that's all they know is like constantly being hawked to. And then you have to kind of like filter through that. And it's kind of expected that everything on the internet is awful and terrible and malicious. I think that maybe, um, maybe a little bit of this spawns from that as a sort of like pure, pure intention. What was your AOL screen name? I don't remember the original one. At some point I moved to, to Zoomer spelled with a whole bunch of, of O's. Yeah, um, <laughs> that were zeros, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I don't know why I went with that other than um, I was also got into cars in high school when I got my license. And and I, I just kind of cycled through random cars. And I think like it just came up somewhere along the way. It had to do something with cars and being into cars back then. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it was Zoomer with a whole bunch of O's. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you guys ever see Chris, just what up, Zoomer? Yeah. Um, mine was pretty terrible. Mine was Sparkle Swimmer 420. You just had to have that 420 in there to edge it up a little bit, you know? But I was obsessed with glitter and I was a swimmer. I'd like put, back in the day, like the raver days of my era, you actually had to buy craft glitter and put it on your eye with tacky stuff. Like there wasn't this like makeup tutorials and like, fuck, I mean, Sephora and shit like that. I mean, yeah, it was a different time, but. um, Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's amazing. I mean, I'm 20 plus years removed from this and I was never hugely into the scene, but I would go occasionally into like Electric Daisy. You know, it was like in some more than a warehouse back then, but like, it was like pretty, it, it was a business for sure. Like mm-hmm. there was a team behind it and a production company, but it was like very only to see, like it moved to like the Coliseum and become like this, like 
big, and now I think it's in Vegas or something. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, where it's it's all over the world. Yeah. Oh, is it now? Yeah. I, I used to work for them. I was a promoter for Pasquale, oh. uh, my Pasquale's neighbor. Oh. Um, but yeah, I used to promote for them and put the flyers in my Honda Civic and hawking oh, yeah. it out. Yeah. It's amazing <laughs> yeah. to see how they've grown and it, you're right. I mean, we'd have like map points and yeah. you're going out to the desert for a party and it's incredible how much it's going. Their live streaming is fucking Are they? insane. If I'm you're so- like bored on a Saturday night. <laughs> I had no idea. I mean, I'm so out of the loop. I, I didn't even know what what you're describing. I didn't even know it got to that level. I mean, the last time I saw it a couple of years ago, pre-COVID, I was blown away with what it had become. Because I just remember in high school days of like, just high school friends loading in up a truck and driving yeah. to like Palmdale or someplace like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now it's so corporate. They're like parking raves, which is a thing. I mean, I, I don't know. It's it's a little, I'm like, yeah, I'll just wait until yeah. we can dance in person again. This is yeah. a little much. But yeah, it's it's a it's a thing. Well, it's been really great chatting with you. I think that what you're doing is not only, you know, good for restaurants, good for consumers. It's it's good for everybody. You know, it's just it's an interesting approach to business and, you know, it proves that you can have a heart and make some money. <laughs> you know, there there can be like, you know, conscious consumerism. Yeah, you don't have to screw people to be successful. Look at that. <laughs> you don't have to be a total dick. So, where can people follow along with everything that Chow Now has going on, everything you've got going on, Chris? I would just recommend everyone go to, to uh, follow us on Instagram. It's probably the best place is channow.com. And then, you know, we'd love if, if anyone wants to use the channel app to order food. It's we, we think we've built the best place to, to order food for both diners and for restaurants. So I would encourage everyone to download the channel app of iPhone or, or Android. Fantastic. Where do you hope to see the business go in the next year? What's your goal? Yeah. So the goal is to create the alternative. I, I, I believe that as COVID gets behind us, hopefully later in the year and restaurants reopen, restaurants will have more options and more leverage to say, you know what? We're not going to pay 30% anymore. We're going to drop you. You're like, we had to use you because all our other revenue went to zero. All the dine-in went to zero. So we had to take as many online orders as possible, even if they weren't all that profitable. Now we don't need that. And so we can pick and choose who we want to, and, and we want to be that, that staying partner that's with them for years and years and years. And, and create that alternative so that people don't have to use Uber Eats or Postmates and overpay for their dinner and the restaurants get screwed and, and everything else. Love that. Well, I hope you guys continue to grow. Hopefully by the end of the year, we'll be able to meet our IRL for a drink and, yeah. and toast that goal being achieved. Uh, yeah. But until then, you please go to do Ronin and have a pizza and, and hang out. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh my God. It's just so good. If you guys have not yet ordered from Ronin, you got to do it. And now that outdoor is back, I think they might be opening up their patio again at some point when it's safe to do so. And it's just a lovely place to escape all of this madness. So it was great chatting with you, Chris. Thank you so much again. Stay safe and healthy in the meantime. Thank you. (laughs) Take care. Thanks so much for tuning in, guys. Feel free to give me a follow at Krista Simmons and at Fork in the Road Media. And of course, if you can, like, subscribe, review, all of those things that I'm terrible at asking for, they mean the world. Please stay safe. We will see you next week. 